are we doing? Good, good. Um, I've, I've engaged in a few um, conversations with Steve regarding the trips and stuff, and, um, man, it just tugged on me, hit me right away. Whoa. <laughs> Don't send no stuff to Steve Prettyman. Mind your business, Bixby. Watch, it's going to answer me again because I said its name. Um, but I've, I've had a few uh, deep conversations with him about it, and like, man, it grabbed me right away. So I am definitely have told him, man, I'm all in. I will load my truck with all my tools I got, and, you know, let's go. So it, it's one of those awesome experiences, and we see uh, many examples in the Bibles uh, of the apostles and, and some of the other disciples going out on mission. So it's definitely something um, pray about. Spend some time with the Lord and, and see where he's leading you in, in that type of decision. And like he said, um, reach out to him. Um, you could reach out to any of us, but I'm just going to direct you to him because he knows more about it. So just cut out the middleman and just go straight to the source. Um, Today we're going to be continuing on in uh, the book of Mark. Uh, we're going to jump into that momentarily, but first join me as we open in prayer. Oh, Father God, Lord, we are so grateful to be here this morning, Lord, to be able to come together as your body and worship your son with that being our only motivation, God just to grow closer to Jesus. So, Lord, we thank you that we are here, that we are in a country, in a city, in a place, and we have a building to come together and worship, Lord. We pray for those who don't know you yet, Lord. Pray that you will put someone in their path, Lord, to introduce them to Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that if we're that someone that you put in their past, that you give us the boldness through your Holy Spirit to not shriek away from that moment, to not hold back, but to, to boldly proclaim your son and his gospel. God, I love you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. So most of you, um, if you've been here a while, have heard my story of being um, on a jail cell floor, sick, withdrawing from drugs, and at my wit's end, and just crying out to God in that moment. God, I heard you are the way. I've tried everything else. That's all I got. I give up. Show me what you got. Lord, I submit my will to you in this moment, but... If we backtrack that instant a little bit, there are some other moments, some other prayers that were said, some other instances where I found myself in those same jail cells, and I found myself saying some prayers, but they didn't sound like that one. They sounded more like, God, if you can just get me out of this situation that I've got myself in right now, then I will do this, this, and this. God, if you will just soften the heart of that judge that I have to go stand before tomorrow and make him lean in my favor, I will do this, this, and this. There was that heart disposition of what's in it for me. God, what can you do for me in this moment? What can you do for me right now? And not just in our walk and our faith with God, but in life anymore, that seems to be a common thing. Whether, whatever you're seeking out in life, whether um, it be a job, a school, a church, a certain club, we almost always ask, find ourselves asking the question, what can this do for me? 
What's in it for me? What does it have to offer? What is the benefit that I could see from this? Um, it's been that way. It's that way now. It's been that way in the past. It'll be that way in the future. And we can see some of this even in Scripture, that it was a common theme we were seeing early in Jesus' ministry. So what I want to do before we get up to um, where we're at is um, I want to take a little look at what we've seen so far in Mark really quick so that we can kind of see uh, um, why maybe today's verses have started off like they have. So, let me see if I get there. Oh, go back one. There we go. I'll, I'll control it from here. Um, and so, in Mark 1, 21 through 28, it said, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, uh, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at this teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing in him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So we see here, um, we see here a little pattern. So he showed up, he was teaching, he was teaching with authority. They were astonished, and they were astonished by, by what he was saying and what he was teaching. And then this man showed up. This man showed up with his unclean spirit, and he, he cast out this demon right there in front of them, and it listened. And I think that sparked some curiosity. That sparked something in them. The first word that was used is they were amazed. And then when after he cast out this demon, they were completely astonished, the Bible says. And so now they're, they're not just grabbed by what Jesus was saying in this moment, but what they seen that he did for this man who was struggling. And... This is conjecture, but I think it started to plant the seed of, wow, he did that for him? What could he do for me? What could he do for the struggles in my life? So as we keep moving through, um, we go down to Mark 1, 29 through 34, and it said, Immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons and he would not permit the demons to speak who knew him. And so... Now we see that this is gaining traction. This is beginning to escalate. So now he shows up. Um, Peter's mom is laying there. She's sick. He, he heals her of the fever in that moment. And now other people are saying, well, 
I got a friend who is sick. Oh, a little while ago, he cast out a demon in that man. I know some people who are demon-possessed. And we see that it says in there that the whole city was gathered together at the door. He was performing these miracles. He was teaching as well. He was teaching with authority like they had never seen, but they had never seen this type of authority over one's body, over one's condition, over demons that were possessing people. So we move along here, um, still traveling through chapter 1, 35, and it says, And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and, every, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went all throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So now it's gaining so much traction that even when he sneaks away to get some prayer, to spend some time with the Father, a search party is sent out. Uh, the... the uh, disciples that were with him, they went out searching for him, and they came with the message that everyone is looking for you. Um, last week, if you were here, uh, when we led in some prayer time, we did some intentional preaching on praying for those in our life who were sick or struggling with some type of depression or anxiety, addiction, whatever it was. So now imagine if Jesus was here. And that word spread. Would you find yourself simply sitting back and praying for that person as we did last week? I would say probably not. You'd be out that door, down to the house, grabbing them by their hand saying, I know someone who can heal you. And that would spread to your neighbors. And that would spread to those other people that they know. And pretty soon, before we knew it, there would be a whole crowd gathered outside here. The street would be packed. The doors would be blocked. Everyone would be coming because of what he can do for their friend, for their loved one, for themselves. So we see here, going on, moving still through um, chapter 1, starting in 40, and it says, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. And, he, and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. And the leper came to him oh, did I go backwards? already at 45 let's just travel here oh it stops one early um it says but then he went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that jesus could no longer enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter now we see it's getting to the point where he can no longer even enter a town 
word is spreading for what he is doing for those who are sick, those who are afflicted, those who are demon-pressed. We just saw the story uh, wrap up over the last couple weeks where four friends were lowering their buddy down through a hole in the roof because he, he was lame, he could not walk, and they were trying to get him at, this, at the feet of Jesus. And even in that moment, there was such a crowd, such a gathering there that they had to resort to the roof because the house was packed, the street was packed, the door was blocked. There was no getting their buddy to Jesus. So that brings us to today's verses. Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Um, and they start off by saying, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. So in verse 13, the theme continues. A huge crowd coming and gathering out by the sea so, they could, so that he could teach them. And, and based on what we've seen so far, we can deduce that there could be a very good chance that they're there with the hopes of receiving some sort of miracle. But Jesus, in that time, whatever the, whatever the reason, whatever the reason for the crowd being there, he was using that opportunity to teach them and to share with them his gospel, the good news of his gospel. And honestly, if we really think about it, that's still kind of a, a common theme that's practiced in church now. Like, look at potluck days. Like, we feed you guys because if we feed you, you're going to show up. And when you show up, we've got to bring the heat. You know what I mean? We, got, we, got, we can't waste that opportunity. But here, so he's teaching. He's got this large crowd gathering together. And um, there's this chance of, like, why? So we ask ourselves, why are they there? How, what, what is the motive behind these large crowds so quickly like we're we're in chapter two here the first section chapter two and i just showed us four or five different examples where there are large crowds just flocking to jesus was it because of who he is or what he had to offer let's take and break down verse 14 a little bit it said and as he passed by he saw levi the son of alphaeus sitting at the tax booth and he said to him Follow me, and he rose and followed him. So let's take a look at Levi a little bit and see um, who he is. Uh, Levi will eventually be known as Matthew. Uh, before he became a disciple of Christ, he was a tax collector or a publican, they called him at the time, in the town of, Caper uh, of Capernaum. And so Matthew, when we hear about Matthew um, going forward, this is this Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And um, he's called Levi here in Mark, and he's called Levi in Luke's account of this situation. Um, so neither one of them really come right out and say that Levi and Matthew are the same ones, but we can, we can kind of deduce that the, the names refer to the same individual because of the context of what's going on. Matthew's account of his call to follow the Lord matches exactly to the accounts of uh, Levi's call here in Mark and in Luke's gospel, both in the terms of the language of how it went down, the chronological placement of when it happened. And so 
We also know that it's not uncommon for a person to be given a different name after an encounter with God. Um, Abram became Abraham, Jacob became Israel, Simon became Peter, Saul became Paul, and it's likely that Matthew, which means gift of God, was the name Jesus gave Levi after this conversion. Um, and so we see here that uh, he was sitting at the tax booth. He was a tax collector. Now, tax collectors in the time were absolutely despised by their own culture because they worked for the Roman government and they were enriched themselves by taking money from their own people, collecting taxes from their own people. They were often known for um, padding their own pockets a little bit through the taxes. We see this in the story um, of Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Um, and then we kind of see here in this moment that it was likely that um, Levi was well off and well to do because in Luke's account of this conversion, Luke mentions that Levi hosted a great banquet for him with a large crowd in attendance. And so that takes money. And so tax collectors such as Matthew or Levi were seen by the religious elite as very sinful people. So sinful that even by hanging with them, even by being in their presence, could immediately tarnish the reputation of a good person. Guilty by association for hanging with the tax collectors. We know that it's impossible to save a person who claims to not need saving. Um, whoa. Many of Jesus' followers were from the poor, they were the rejected, they were the sick, they were the sinful, they were the weary, and he never condemned any of those people. He forgave them, he encouraged them. Jesus' harshest condemnations that we see in Scripture were often to the Pharisees, the ones that were the teachers of the law, the scribes that thought themselves too good to be caught in the presence of any tax collector or any sinner around them. And so Levi was one of the tax collectors who Jesus saved. When Jesus called, uh, when called by Jesus, he immediately left his tax booth and followed him. If you think about that, the tax booth just wasn't his... Um, vocation. It wasn't just his job. It was the source of everything. It was the source of all of his riches, all of his comfort. I imagine it being the source of his, his statue of how he felt important, a part of something bigger than himself. It was all of his security. It was all of his comfort. He left all of that to travel with Jesus experience hardships, experience persecution, and eventually experience his martyrdom. He left his old life for a new life with Jesus. So when we think about who he, who he is, who he was in this moment, how he was looked at by the religious elite, this scumbag tax collector that was taking money from their very own people, what a dirtbag. He doesn't really sound like the ideal candidate to be a disciple of Jesus, right? He doesn't really fit the mold. So ask this question. What is the ideal candidate? 
what is the ideal candidate? So let's um, rewind real quick, pull us back out of this moment, this time in history, and let's jump back into society and our current lives right now. For any position in society, the search is always for the ideal candidate. The person that fits the mold the best for exactly what that company, that school, whatever it is, exactly what they're looking for, people are always searching out for the right candidate. And honestly, in my opinion, this is a type of grooming that begins early on that can, in a sense, um, hamper the growth of our society as much as it can help it. Um, Think back to the elementary age and when it's time for student government. In that moment, the kids, whatever age, fifth grade, whatever age they start doing that, are trying to convince all of their friends why they are the perfect candidate to represent them in their classroom, in their student government, whether it's with candy, cool posters, whatever it is, they're trying to convince everyone that I'm that guy. I fit the mold. Let me represent you. Let me be your voice. And then um, it continues on through all of the uh, middle school, high school, it continues on, and then it's time for those same uh, young kids to apply for college scholarships. And um, there are there are the application forms where they're gathering information, and the, the schools and the universities are trying to find the, the students that represent who they are at their university and find the correct candidate. And then we know after that point, it moves on to uh, the job field. When you're applying for any type of job after that point, you go through the application process, the interview process, and you're trying to convince that person in that interview that you fit the mold of what they're looking for. And so um, I think there can be times where some people can go through this process and they can go through trying to uh, fit the mold and be the correct candidate, and it doesn't ever happen. They're not really ever the correct candidate. They don't ever really fit the mold. And that can create a mindset of, you know what, why, need, why even try anymore? Like, I haven't been that person yet. I'm not that person now. It's for someone else to do. And so, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that training and education and overcoming different bouts of adversity in our life aren't healthy and needed and life-giving. I'm just saying it could be a slippery slope that can hamper someone's confidence and growth just as much as it could help the next person. And so... um, I don't know if it's through that set of circumstances that I listed, but we see it in, uh, in the church, in the church body, when we are looking for um, different people to lead certain ministries or to serve in different roles and capacities, it, we can easily sit back and say, mm, I'm not the right candidate for that. I'm not wired for that. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough with kids. Who is, really? (laughs) But we can tell ourselves these things, and we can talk ourselves out of stepping up and answering the call that God has on our lives. Um, 
And, and when we know and understand kingdom economics, that God usually operates in the way completely opposite of what we know and how we operate in society, we know that that isn't the perfect candidate isn't always what God is looking for. Um, if you guys want an example, take a look at your pastoral team. <laughs> like, none of us are Bible college graduates. None of us have studied under these great theologians. I don't want to speak for these two, but for me and myself, it simply came down to um, Pastor Jesse pulling me over on the side of the road and saying, hey man, you want to join the, our youth group leadership team? Every part of my brain had every excuse to say no. Uh, I've never done that before. I've just barely been attending your church for six months, a year, whatever it was at that time. Um, I've never even went to youth group when I was a youth, let alone lead one now. I'm barely self-sufficient as an adult. You know where I came from? <laughs> like I had all of these excuses on why I should say no, but what I did because I did what I wouldn't have normally done, and I said, you know what, yeah, I'll give that a try. And man, I had no idea what God had planned for my life from that very moment in, in taking me step through step, and here we are today. So what, what I really want us to see and understand that we can see here is that, that God's not always looking for the ideal candidate on paper. He's looking for the right heart disposition of who you are. Jesus, we see all through Scripture, all through the, the Gospels, he has a heart for the outcast. He has a heart for the, for the underqualified. We see it time and time again in Scripture. So ask yourself, do you ever feel like you don't belong? Perhaps for whatever reason it may be, uh, you feel like an outcast from society or in certain situations and social circles, you feel like you're on the outside looking in, maybe you're not part of the popular crowd or you're not as qualified as everyone else in, in the room at certain times, and I will tell you, I can relate to that. Sometimes when I go to our Castle Country Pastors meeting and I'm sitting there with some of these educated, long-time pastors, I'm like, why am I here right now? Like, what am I doing in this room? Who gave these guys the authority to invite me to this? Like, I don't understand. But that doesn't have to be a bad thing. That, I don't want that type of mindset, that type of thinking to, to push you away from doing something. Or maybe you even feel far from God at the moment. Like, I wonder how can God still accept me when I'm so far off, I'm so far gone, I'm so far away from him. Like, if you've ever experienced any of those thoughts or any of those feelings, like, take heart. There's good news in that. I want us to look um, into the Gospel of Luke for a few examples because the Gospel of Luke is, is unique in a way that it, it has this, it's known for um, highlighting how Jesus is the friend of sinners or Jesus is the friend of outcasts. So I want us to um, take a look at a few examples 
In the Gospel of Luke, there, was, there were lepers and tax collectors and prostitutes and other sinners, and they found themselves, some of them that found themselves in these certain situations through no fault of their own. They were, they were lame, they were crippled, they were poor, they were afflicted, they were widows, but they were not who the religious elite saw as acceptable. They were not who the religious elite saw as qualified. They were not who the religious elite saw as clean. So, um, I want to take a look at a few examples, but I'm just going to kind of summarize these for us, and I'll, I'll put up the, the situation and the slide um, will have the scripture on it. So I, I urge you, if you want to look deeper, dive into these stories and really get the full sense for the way Jesus was interacting um, with these people. So we have the sinful woman in Luke 7, 36 through 50. And so in this passage, Jesus is eating a meal at a Pharisee's house. And while the other guests are sitting there, a woman comes in. And she comes in with this alabaster jar, and Luke describes her as having led a sinful life. Some commentators will um, assume that she's a prostitute, but this woman walks in. And she walks in the door, and she is instantly full of remorse. She begins, she begins to cry. Tears are streaming down her face. They're falling onto the feet of Jesus and to the chagrin of all of those around who are watching, all of those who are elite, who are accepted. She begins to wipe the feet of Jesus with her hair. She also anoints his feet with oil. And Simon, the Pharisee whose house he was at, he voices his dis disapproval of what's going on to Jesus. And Jesus responds by telling him a parable about a money lender who forgives two people of immeasurable debt. And he, Jesus asked him, which one will love him more? And Simon responds, the one who has the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus then proceeds to forgive the woman's sin and leaving the guest flabbergasted. And so the main point to note here is that even though the others in this room shunned her, even though they thought she was defiling Jesus as she touched him, Jesus wasn't concerned about her status. He wasn't concerned about her past. He looked at her as a precious child of God who had done a special thing for him, and he forgave her sins and told her, go and sin no more. If your past troubles you, just know that none of your sins, none of the distance, none of the things that you have done are too terrible for Jesus to forgive you. He loves you, he accepts, accepts you, and he welcomes you into his arms. The next example we're going to look at is Legion, the demon-possessed man. And this will be in Luke 8, 26 through 39. So Jesus comes along and he encounters this demon-possessed man in the region of Daenerys across the Lake of Galilee. So this guy, he lived as an outcast. He lived out in the caves and other remote places. He really didn't ever have any clothes on. He was just like a wild person, like a wild animal. People have um, shackled him from time to time with chains to bind him and keep him from hurting himself or others. He frequently breaks free of those chains because of this supernatural strength that he has from these demons that are possessing him. And then in verse 30, Jesus asks his name, and he responds that it's legion because many demons are 
have gone into him. In that moment, Jesus commands the demons to come out of the man. And the demons in that moment, they recognize him. And they beg him to, be, to send them into a herd of pigs. They, they, uh, they flee into this herd of pigs. They run headfirst down this cliff. And they jump into the water below and they drown. When others nearby, they've seen this example of what had happened. They come running up to Jesus and his disciples. And they find the man sitting there, clothed, normal, and in his right mind. They're filled with fear in that moment, and they ask Jesus to leave. The man begs Jesus, please take me with you. But Jesus tells him, no, I want you to go, and I want you to go tell everyone around of what God has done for you. He had suffered a long time with an afflicting spirit, which had kept him in bondage for years. He had not been in his right mind, and he had been stuck in a wilderness of his own, alone, afflicted, and broken. So whether you see this as a demon possession, um, some commentators called it a form of epilepsy, whatever it is, just know that there is power in the name of Jesus. It was at his name that these demons fleed. So if you've ever felt like this outcast in a spiritual physical, emotional bondage, know that at his word, at his name, Jesus can deliver you from whatever it is that is holding you back and whatever it is that is binding you. And then the last one, we see the lost son, um, Luke 15, 11 through 32. So um, Jesus is eating with tax collectors again at the beginning of this chapter, uh, something we often find him doing in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of Luke. And he goes on and he starts to tell them three uh, parables to demonstrate God's love. God's love of how he has came to seek and save the lost. The first two parables are those relatively short ones about the lost sheep and the lost coin. And the final one is a much longer and perhaps the most well-known parable in the Bible, the lost son or more famously known as the prodigal son. And so there's the father. He has these two sons who live with him and they seemingly have everything they could ask for, everything they could wish for. And one day the younger son he goes to his dad and he says, man, I want everything. I want my inheritance. I want it now. I'm going to head off on my own. I'm out. He goes out with everything that he was given and he leads this reckless lifestyle. He goes and he squanders all of his inheritance. And then in all of that, a famine hits the land and he finds himself hungry. He's starving. He has no food for his stomach. And he comes up with this plan. You know what? I'm going to get a job as a pig feeder, a hog feeder. And maybe there I can get a meal. And so he's sitting. He's waiting. He's waiting for hope with the hopes of eating from the pods that the pigs are given and nobody gives him nothing. And so he tells himself, you know what? I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to ask to be hired as a hand because even the hired hands and my father have bread to eat. He goes back. And so 
He sees on his way back, his father sees him off in his distance, and his father runs out to him, and he greets his son on the road, and he, he has them get him a robe, and they get him a ring, and he tells the helpers to, to get the fatted calf and kill the fatted calf, and we're going to have a feast. The son tells his father, look, dad, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. However, the father He's not hearing none of it. The older brother who was out in the field, he hears the rumbling. He hears the sound of celebration. And he is angry to find out that his father has killed the fatted calf for this ungrateful brother of his who has wasted all of his father's money. However, he's never done nothing similar for him. He's been loyal. He's been there. He's stuck by his side. He ain't got no celebrations. The father reassures his son that everything he has is his, but they must celebrate his brother because he was dead and now he is alive. Something I want us to note here is we often use the word prodigal in these days to mean wayward or lost, but that's not the original sense that they're talking about here. It's more of like recklessly extravagant. That's what the younger son did with his lifestyle. He was, he was recklessly extravagant and running off and squandering all that he had. So if you feel that you are lost, if you've wasted your life, then know that God is going to welcome you back with open arms like the father in this parable did. He's willing to pour out his love abundantly even if you feel you've sinned against him and you sinned against heaven. So in closing here, I, want, I always want to leave us something to chew on, a question to ask ourselves and uh, to, to really take and find out where your heart is. What's the answer? Um, are you the brother that humbly came running back to, to the father? Or are you the brother in the field to be like, God ain't done nothing like that for me? And so, why are you here? probably safe to assume that you're here today to be close to Jesus. But why? What's, what's the reason? What's the motivation? Are you here today like the large crowds following him because you want what he has to offer? Or like the apostles who followed him wherever he went, encountered all kinds of persecution, eventually to their death, most of them. They experienced the goodness of who he is in person, and that was enough to keep them around, for them to want to be in his presence. They didn't do anything to deserve the type of love that he was showing them. Is it for... Are you here to be helped through the things that you're going through right now? Or is eternity in mind? Are you here because you know that you are going to be in the presence of the Son and the Father in heaven forever and ever and ever? If you're not sure about the answer to that question, listen to your prayers. Listen to your own prayers. Are there prayers for God's will in your life, for his glory, 
They're prayers for your will to magically be done by God for your glory. Is it for now or is it for forever? And the second question is, if you're not, obviously, but why aren't you answering his call? This might not fit us all. It might fit us all great. There might be one call you've answered, one that you're shying away from. But why aren't you answering the call on your life that God is placing? God's call on our lives goes much deeper than showing up here on Sunday morning. His call is to go. His call is to act. His call is to serve. So if this fits you and you're not answering those calls, why? Hopefully you've seen from today's message that I'm not the ideal candidate really isn't an excuse anymore. He's not looking for your qualifications. He's not looking for your education. He's not looking for your social status. He's looking at your heart disposition. If you feel unqualified, inexperienced, inadequate, or simply like the outcast who doesn't fit in, I have good news. If you have a heart that beats for Jesus, if you have a heart that beats for the Lord, you are the perfect candidate. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we, we just thank you so much that you look at us in our mess. You look at us flawed, broken, chasing our tails around like fools. And you say, I want that one. I want her. I want him. I want you in spite of that. I want you because you were created in my likeness and image, and I love you. Let that humble us, Lord. Humble us to the point that we follow you because of who you are, not what you can do for us. We follow your call in our lives because we know that this is just a short period that we have here on this earth and that the glory that we will have spending eternity in heaven face to face with you is greater than anything that we can ever imagine or experience while we are here. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for making this possible, for wiping away the, the stench of our sins and bringing us back into the fold with the Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen.